You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This is the Slice of MIT Alumni Books podcast. This is Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. Tobias Ayer, class of 1996, is the author of Sphinx of the Charles, A Year at Harvard with Harry Parker, published in October 2016 by Lions Press. Ayer, who rode competitively for more than 20 years during and after his time at MIT, served on the legendary Harvard coach's staff and shadowed him through one of his ultimate seasons while preparing to write this book. Ayer currently teaches and coaches rowing at Salisbury School in Connecticut. Toby Ayer, why write this book now? I started writing it while I was coaching with Harry. In fact, I started writing things down in those first couple of years when I was at Harvard, and I was, I was seeing things that I'd never seen in print about him. And I thought someone should tell everyone about these parts of Harry because I thought they were better than than what was in the books and the articles that came out. I, I always felt like all the books and articles sort of repeated the same mythology. And, and some of it I thought like, wasn't even true. And the reality was better. So I started just writing things down. And I was hoping to have it done and out some time ago. And then I was busy. And then after he passed, I was really still I mean, I was like on the verge of finishing it up, and that I guess so that really prompted me to get it done. He started coaching at Harvard in 1961, and you follow him most closely in this book through his 48th season. What was different about him in his 48th season from his first, or what was the same? So I, I asked him about that occasionally because people would say that there were ways that he had changed, and and he had no, he at least didn't admit that there was anything that much different. As, as he got older, but um, he, he may have like reduced the amount of emotion he expressed. I think he, I think he allowed himself early on to be a little more. I, want, I don't want to say forceful. You think he was always forceful. You, there were stories early on of him kind of blowing up a little bit more at his cruise, and I think later on he that sort of toned down and he, he stopped being maybe quite as active with them. In the early years, he was always running with them, skiing with them running the stadium with them. And, and later on, he was still doing it. When I first, the first couple of years I was there at Harvard, he was like, he, when they did a triathlon just before Christmas, he ran the stadium and ran and did 7,500 meters on the earth. Like he did all that with them. But in the early years, he was beating them. And I think that's part of what helped everyone follow him and buy into what he was doing was that he, he competed with them. He, he like pushed them himself. And later on, he wasn't quite doing that, but they were still, they were, I mean, they were still mightily impressed with, you know, a 70 year old who could, he did not lose, uh, you know, the triathlon. He was not the slowest one to complete these events against, you know, the 20 year olds. If I could describe your style, it's through a zoom lens that we look at Harry up close on his launch, following his teams out in the river in Newell Boathouse at other university events and so forth. It's really a matter of access to him. And, and I, it did get me thinking of what a solitary sport it is for a coach to be so distant from fans and so distant from the press to often. Clearly, it's a, it, you know, the rowing is a pretty obscure topic, you know, in, in sort of the general sense, but it ends up being a rowing book. But, I mean, I thought he was. Uh, pretty remarkable to say as a person. And I think that's what I wanted to depict was just was the person, you know, sort of thinking about a profile of, of, a, of a person who was like a pretty remarkable guy, and, you know, the kind of success he had and his like his expertise and the way people followed him. And in, in, in a way that I think wasn't necessarily all about rowing. So 
I struggled a, a, a little bit whether to try to reduce the amount of rowing in the book, but then it ends up it was just it seemed crucial to have all the detail in there. But yeah, it's true. I mean, I, people. I mean, part of the mythology was that he never actually said anything, and no one really, as far as I could tell, had ever recorded so closely what he actually did in the launch every day. No one really bothered to do that. They would just say, "Oh, everyone says he doesn't talk," and then that was all they said about it. Whereas the reality was he he did say things, and it was pretty interesting. You know what he said and how he said it, and felt like I was fundamentally trying to chronicle what he did and try to you know pick out the things that that made his personality what it was. I found some pieces of you know actual paragraphs of their quotes from Perry or your paraphrases of him actually coaching. It's uh, chapter three, page twenty nine. Before they rode the head of the Charles, Harry reminds his men of the racing attitude he expects to be strong and persistent, to take the first couple of minutes to settle in, focus on length, power, and rhythm, try to hold off chasing crews, but if passed, stay strong and keep going. But so much of the, the actual heat of the moment at coaching, he leaves to his to his coxswains. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's sort of an expectation that like they, they sort of learn in practice what the attitude is, and I mean, the coxswain's job is to put that into practice, and the, and the rowers too. Like their job is to you know incorporate that into their own their own attitude and execute it. I think you know part of it he tries to make it as simple as possible, so that there's no there's no doubt about what their job is to do. You know, not a complicated plan, but you just keep pushing. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's there's an aspect there that he's lucky enough to have good athletes that can execute that sort of a thing and learn how to, you know, how to come up with a good race. The lightweight coach, Charlie Butt, who's now the heavyweight coach there, but he always says, as soon as you talk to him about, you know, being a good coach, he says, well, you have to start with athletes. If you don't have good athletes, you're not going to be a successful coach. Talk about uh, how how much geography was important to making him a great coach, uh, being at Harvard. Uh, You you have some lovely descriptions of the Charles River in this book, and would Harry have been Harry somewhere else other than, than, than on the Charles River? I, th- I think he would have. I've, you know, I've thought about, well, even uh, not even about situating him uh, in in Boston. I, mean, I suppose, you know, other than the the, the athletes, I mean, it is true he really did settle in there and make it his own. But if you knew Boston, his family had come from the, the Boston area. It's not like it was his river until he made it his river. And I think wherever he ended up, he would have made it his river. <laughs> um, one of the things I've thought about him as a, as a person in feeling like. Here's this guy who I was feeling sort of envious of him being apparently so perfect for where he was and what he was doing. But I think a lot of it was he just decided to be as good as he could be at it and figured out a way to do that and made himself better. And if he had to learn that river, he was going to learn that river. And and he did. Like, he was an expert at what was going on at every corner of that. But I think he would have done that, you know, if he'd stayed on the Schuylkill in Philadelphia, he would have done it there or on a lake somewhere. I think he, he, was, a, he was an engineer, really, at, at heart and, uh, you know, would look for the way to get things done. You know, however it had to get done, he would, he would become an expert at it and, and implement it. You're, you're writing this book and then publishing it uh, in a time when so many coaching icons uh, in, in the United States have, if not fallen, been made more human, either through you know, scandal or, or um, um, you know, new data coming out about their sport and so forth. How does Harry stand out against you know, some of his peers you know, you know, across athletics? One thing that's remarkable is that he, um, I mean, this is true of some others, obviously, but he, that he's, I mean, compared to some other rowing coaches, he stayed in the same place. He didn't jump around like people. There's a you know sort of regular rotation of coaching positions, but he 
every once in a while, I, I, he said someone would try to get him to move to a different university, but he stayed where he was. He probably could have moved more towards doing national team sort of stuff at some point, and and continue, like which he, which he did do for a while. But he liked coaching for the for the university team more than he liked um, dealing with the the national and Olympic teams. So that's different too. Like he didn't like he it's like he found where you know his like found his his sweet spot and re- remained the absolute reference point for excellence. You cite the club's uh, four-page profile of Harry from 1965, which was a remarkable year for the team, saying he uh, the man for the job and he should be good more or less forever. <laughs> I know, isn't that incredibly amazing? That when I when I read that, it's like they, so that they had no idea what they were, that they were so right about that. Yeah, it was incredible when I when I read that. You have a lovely comparison between his coaching style and his last week of life, and and how much he kind of followed his advice right up to the end. Yeah, it was interesting when I, you know when when that happened, and going back and, and reading, there was a interview after the national championship, and great little interchange with a reporter where the reporter is talking about trying to push him to say what kind of strategy they have, and he says, and he's saying, no, you just you keep going until you can't go anymore. That that's like that's the racing strategy, <laughs> and he kept coaching. He clearly was like his body was failing. He recovered and came back for a couple of years, and then the last year he was sort of in and out. Kept coaching a couple of days a week all year long. Kept driving his launch. There were these stories of him having to crawl out of the coaching launch and like sort of not really being able to walk even to follow the Harvard Yale race. And then he was in the hospital in Boston, and apparently checked himself out of the hospital <laughs> to go coach on the river for this reunion of the, of the 1980 Olympic group who had remained close all those years. So he's out on the river with them and Bill Manning is you know, rowing in a boat and, and his daughter Abigail is rowing in the boat and he's like switching people out <laughs> in between crews. And then I think he, I think he died three days later or two days later after that after that row. You mentioned Abigail. Uh, I love this anecdote you paint of her at his memorial, uh, reading Tennyson and the George Santayana quote, uh, what is there in the universe more fascinating than running water and the possibility of moving over it? What better image of existence and possible triumph? Talk about the tribute in the river that day. They gathered, I mean, there were so many crews there. You couldn't believe they emptied out both, both the Harvard boathouses, the men's and the women's boathouses. And crews from over, you know, over the 50 years, 50 plus years, they all got in boats and, you know, paddled down the river and, and they all sort of processed past the boathouse. There was this big banner across the front of Newell Boathouse that just said, thank you, Harry. It was, it was a very moving service with, you know, both remembrances and, and obviously songs and, and poems. And then almost all of the captains, I think, were there. I think there were maybe two missing. And they were all, like, as you left the church, they were standing by the door with each one had an oar. He sort of walked out through this, through these oars. How did Harry Parker make either your team at MIT or MIT a stronger crew program? Well, they were they were the reference point. The varsity, we never really, you know, you would you couldn't really say that we raced them because they were so much faster. I mean, we, we had a three-way race with Harvard and Princeton and MIT. We were never really in contention. One year, our second boat sort of did something crazy and stayed out ahead for, you know, a thousand meters and then dropped, dropped way, way back. But they were, like, we, we would see them practicing. They just, it always seemed like there are these big guys just sort of rowing slowly past, quietly. And there was, like, this, this sort of image of, of power and smoothness. 
but they were the best play. I remember uh, there was a, a little whiteboard, and someone said, "Someone had written Harvard is going down." <laughs> you know, like that was like that was that was the goal. Like, can we do what we have to do to to match Harvard? Though, you know, that was uh, it was an elixir, always out of reach. Yeah. Yeah. Talk talk about how Harry, uh, even to this day, influences your own coaching. I, I remember periodically that I would be looking at the blades. That the blades are the most important thing. And and then the other thing is is that I I try to find ways to have both side by side and compete against each other in a useful way. Like he seemed like that was so much a part of what he did was at whatever cadence or whatever kind of a piece they're trying to do. If he could if he could have both trying to push each other. It always seemed like that was the, that was the way to do it was to try to get them head to head. Like he was always happiest when they were cruised side by side, neither one quite being able to win. That would make him happy. So I try to do that as much as I can. Talk about reception to the book so far. What's been great is I get emails from guys who wrote at Harvard, some who I know because I, I knew many years worth really, both the guys who were there 15 years ago, and then I met various alumni. So to get emails from them and other random Harvard alums from 30 years ago who I've never met, and also even alums of the school I'm at now. I just got an email from someone who wrote at, at my school 50 years ago and just read the book. And so they always tell me always tell me a couple of stories, which is great. You know, hear their own story of when they were at Harvard or when they raced at Harvard or they were aware of, of Harry. That's been great. When, when they tell me that, that I got it right. Like it's so that's you know it was really important to me to to get it right. What else are you reading right now? I have an eight year old son who read all the Harry Potter books last summer and has been going through them again. So I've been I've been going through them again. So I'm I'm in the middle of uh, the Half Blood Prince right now. <laughs> we should say that the introduction to your book is Harry Parker and the Cauldron of Pain. Yeah, that's right. That was um yes. Yeah, so I was very happy <laughs> to have found that. The publishers talked about using that for the overall title at one point. Otherwise, I just read Chris Hadfield's book, An Astronaut's God, The Life of Earth, which was uh, fascinating. Toby Ayer's new book is Sphinx of the Charles, A Year at Harvard with Harry Parker, available now online or at your favorite local bookstore. Toby, thanks for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.